Thank you very much for being here today. I uh, didn't know exactly what to expect, and I don't imagine you did either, so we'll see what comes out of this. So this event is the result of uh, Dave Mason's generosity, uh, who noted that we do not often recognize the publication of books by faculty and that he would like to correct that omission by helping to organize this gathering. Of course, he helped mostly by assigning Paula Pine the task of making the arrangements, and she enlisted Rory Stadler, and I want to thank both of them for their work on this event. I also want to remind everyone of two other recent faculty books that deserve our attention. Uh, John Riker's cleverly entitled, Why It Is Good to Be Good, and Michael O'Reilly's ominously titled, Cinema in an Age of Terror. You have come today on faith, and that fact is encouraging for my subject. The poster and announcements told you little about what to expect, although the picture of the cover of my book may have given you some inkling that shameless promotion would be involved. Uh, you were, of course, not mistaken. And if you are interested in actually purchasing a copy of the book, you can do so at the website for the publisher, New York University Press. You can also buy it on Amazon for less. In fact, and this news is very unsettling to me, there are already used copies for sale. <laughs> I take comfort that those readers did not, upon completion of the book, burn it. This is going to be a combination of talk and reading, and if it gets intolerably boring, at least there'll be pictures for you to look at from time to time. Every book begins before it begins. And so, even before the table of contents, you will find in this book a preview with some reflections on the painting on the cover. This is a painting by Rene Magritte, and he called it Le Pays des Miracles, The Land of the Miracles. The painting is surreal in that it depicts an excess of reality by collapsing two worlds. The ordinary world imposed on, or is it disrupted by, a land of moonlit wonders? At first glance, the vase appears to contain a light blue flowering bouquet. Near the base is a nest with three eggs in orderly arrangement. Immediately, we rule out the possibility that the nest fell by accident from the plant. It has been placed as if by design. Upon closer investigation, it appears that the jagged outline we thought to be flowers could be a tree with the vase forming the trunk. But where is the rest of the plant? Is it covered by the dream scene of trees and clouds? But that scene is not in front. We are seeing the countryside of miracles through the plant. But if so, is the bouquet transparent or has it been destroyed? Was our peephole to the world beyond with its delicate lacy rim ripped out of the brown background that is really the foreground? The placid image with its soothing blue is surcharged with traces of violence. And how could it be otherwise? Can miracles break into our world in any other way except as transgressions, violations, as we often say, of the law of nature? 
So it seems to those who are accustomed to viewing the world as the orderly creation of God or the regulated unfolding of evolutionary process. But for others, the world in which miracles occur is the greater reality that supports their lives and provides them with hope and faith to aspire to flight beyond the routine cycles of the nest. So you are on warning that the book does not view miracles as necessarily benign and quiet adjustments in the ordinary course of things. To be included in this book, the story must be about an event of transcendent power that leaves the viewer slack-jawed, smitten with wonder. In my analysis, miracles are not always exercises of compassion or lessons in morality. They are events of transcendent power that arouse wonder and carry religious significance. Now, right off the bat, you're thinking, that's a fudge word if I ever heard one. What is transcendent? Admittedly vague, it has some advantages, however, over less satisfactory categories, like supernatural or sacred, about which we know even less. The English verb transcend derives from a combination of Latin roots which means across and climb. The image of a climb puts us in the semantic range of ascent, one of the oldest forms of religious discourse. Most religions, we might say, begin with the glance upward. The preposition across, however, indicates lateral movement from one location to another, not necessarily above, but different. To reach the transcendent, then, one must climb, or clamor, for there are obstacles, across to a different site. In religious usage, that site is other than the material world. The transcendent may be in heaven, but it may also just be elsewhere, a term that the Polish philosopher Kolakowski reminds us in Latin is alibi. However transcendence is understood, it seems indispensable to religious views of reality, implying at the very least possibilities not otherwise available in this world. As an event of power, every miracle can be invested with political authority and figure in polemical debates. I'll see your levitating yogi and raise you an ascended messiah. Sometimes miracles figure in such polemical debates as reasons for accepting one religious view over another. A 10th century Sufi master was arguing against a Zoroastrian priest that fire has no inherent reality because it burns only by divine permission. The Sufi then passed through a blazing pyre to establish the point that only God invests elements with their powers they have no intrinsic causality. The miracle persuaded the Zoroastrian that the Sufi's version of metaphysics was correct. Really? How does a particular set of beliefs follow from an unprecedented, extraordinary event? In general, how are miracles related to beliefs? Not as clearly or unambiguously as we might suppose. Take a darker example from the Hebrew Bible. 
The prophet Elijah challenged religious rivals, priests of Baal, the Canaanite god of storms and fertility, who may be active this afternoon, to a duel of miracles. At Mount Carmel, Elijah set before the Israelites a stark choice. If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The terms of the contest were straightforward. Set up two altars with the body of a bull on each. Then you call on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire is indeed God. The outcome was never in doubt. The prophets of Baal pleaded to heaven all morning with no result. Elijah mocked them, asking whether Baal were sleeping or perhaps answering the call of nature. The priests increased their efforts to no avail. About three in the afternoon, Elijah began building the altar to Yahweh. He dug a deep trench around it and filled it with water. He prayed that God would reveal himself to the people and so confirm his status as the servant of the Lord. The answer was immediate, spectacular, and excessive. Sorry about the Sunday school illustrations. Hard to get on-site demonstrations of miracles. According to the text, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, and the dust, and even licked up the water that was in the trench. The people of Israel fell on their faces and confessed in nervous repetition, the Lord indeed is God, the Lord indeed is God. Well, perhaps any of us with the heat of heavenly flames on our face would join in their confession. But would the miracle be proof that Yahweh is the only being properly called God? The problem is that the rest of the story may provide grounds for doubting whether Yahweh is worthy of worship. The aftermath of Elijah's demonstration introduced moral ambiguity into the story. The prophet rounded up in a dry stream bed all 450 priests of Baal and proceeded to direct their execution. Perhaps the sight of the slaughter was an ironic comment on the inability of Baal to bring rain, let alone fire. And it is true that the priests were in league with Queen Jezebel, who used the power of the throne to prosecute prophets of Yahweh. Still, the reader wonders what theological claim the carnage in that bloody wadi near Mount Carmel demonstrated. Fortunately, most theological disputes adjudicated by miracles do not require those defeated to forfeit their lives. But these stories do typically end with defeated opponents, like the Zoroastrian priest, exchanging their beliefs for those of the triumphant miracle worker. At least that is often the expectation of those who win such arguments. Now let me be clear that my treatment of miracles is not a defense of any set of wondrous works as more authentic or authoritative than others. Rather, this book is about the meaning of miracles in world religions. To be more specific, it is about the way the stories of miracles have been interpreted and reinterpreted over the centuries in five traditions, the ones that generally appear at the top of every list of world religions. That is a list with a contested political history that is too complicated to take up this afternoon. 
But most of us are familiar with the Big Five. Hinduism and Buddhism, usually identified as Eastern or Asian religions, and Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, conventionally called Western religions, with no one noting that a world religion is probably not limited to one of the two hemispheres. In my book, I take them up in order of their appearance in history, with the subversive intention to demonstrate that miracles signify quite different things in each tradition, no matter where it is located in some theoretical map. What is the same across all these traditions are stories about similar events. Levitation, perhaps the most widespread miracle of all. Priests ascend, yogis fly, lamas soar, everyone's up in the air. Instantaneous healing, translocation, control of natural forces, communication with animals, knowledge of other minds, and insight into the nature of reality, mysteries inaccessible to human understanding. Now, in my book, I don't make a great distinction between external and internal or inner and outer miracles. I think if you are claiming that an event, whether it is a healing or a revelation, is an event of transcendent significance, then you are claiming a miracle, whether it's visible or invisible. And so I regard the Buddha's enlightenment as a miracle, as much as, say, Muhammad's ascent into heaven. The events themselves are similar, but the meanings that the traditions assigned to them are very different. Thus, my chapter headings reflect the primary ways miracle stories function as signs, narratives that signify major themes in each tradition. Miracle stories are narratives. I spend quite a bit of time talking about them as performative language that draw readers into their world and make them uh, experienced as such. And in that respect, I, I draw some on the work of our own George Butte, uh, from his book, I Know That You Know That I Know. It's a great title. As a further principle of organization, I arrange the material in each chapter according to what kind of religious leader performs miracles in each tradition. I discover that in the matter of receiving a miracle, it really does depend on who you know. Also, I begin each chapter with a miracle story that I think clearly illustrates the theme of the chapter. Let me give you an example from the chapter on Islam. This is the story of the disappearing Sufi. There was once a humble man who discovered the divine presence in his own heart. He applied to a religious order, and those in charge gave him a small house in bad repair for himself and a single student. The inner radiance of this ordinary-looking teacher soon attracted a crowd of students, and the authorities decided to test his understanding. Calling him before them, they demanded he explain the first truth of Islam, there is no God but God. The Sufi began with the first phrase, there is no God, and disappeared from sight. Then the crowd heard him say, but God, and he reappeared. He repeated this feat three times. 
On the fourth recitation of There Is No God, the entire assembly, including his examiners, disappeared. And when he said, But God, they reappeared. The story of the overlooked master is an enacted commentary on the confession of faith. There is no God but God. The sheikh reveals the inability of his questioners to see the radical contingency of the world and the transitory nature of the human self. Now you see me, now you don't. Now you appear, now you don't. For the Swiss Sufi master Friedhof Schuan, the quintessence of Islam is disclosed only through an indefinite play of veiling and unveiling. The alternation of visibility and invisibility represents the state of the world, moment by moment brought into being anew by continuous divine creativity. Apart from God, there is nothing. So the sheikh who is in total unity with God is literally no thing and thus not available as an object of sight. His ego is annihilated in the divine unity, and his realization of the Islamic claim, there is no God, is so powerful that his spectators also disappear. In the playful veiling and unveiling of the miracle, the sheikh disclosed what is otherwise hidden in the mind of God. He became, in that wondrous moment, a living revelation. Finally, my analysis proceeds on the premise that in each of the traditions, there is popular enthusiasm for miracles, official regulation of miracle claims, and internal dissent from belief in miracles. It's this latter section in each chapter that sets this book apart from other surveys because it shows that there are religious grounds for denying belief in miracles. That is, miracles are a contested subject not just between religion and science, but within religious traditions themselves. Thus, my slogan that recurs in the book, not all who believe in miracles are irrational, and not all who deny miracles are irreligious. I'll give you an example from an extraordinary figure in the Hindu tradition, Swami Vivekananda. He was a spectacular success at the Parliament of World Religions held in Chicago in 1893, where he charmed his audience with the message of the validity of all religious paths. The title Swami comes from the Sanskrit for master or prince and identified him as a Hindu teacher with a regal bearing that added to his mystique. Vivekananda's philosophy combined respect for Vedic scriptures emphasis on moral duty, and absolute rejection of miracles. When asked about the crucifixion of Christ, Vivekananda responded that the execution was a mirage because Christ was God incarnate and therefore could not die. The questioner followed up by suggesting that such a successful illusion could be considered the greatest miracle of all and drew this response from the Swami, I look upon miracles as the greatest stumbling blocks in the way of truth. Vivekananda equated the desire for miracles with the wish to get by gift of the gods what ought to be earned by personal effort. He held in contempt those who sought divine favors as engaged in a religion of shopkeeping. 
Later, the Swami offered a more sympathetic explanation of why we are all running after the miraculous and extraordinary when he called the desire an indication of universal dissatisfaction with human bondage to the material world. When Vivekananda was challenged to perform a miracle to confirm the truth of his teaching, he declined on these grounds. In the first place, I am no miracle worker. And in the second place, the true Hindu religion I profess is not based on miracles. Most of the strange things which are done in India and reported in the foreign papers are sleight-of-hand tricks or hypnotic illusions. He insisted, you must not mix up Christ or Buddha with hobgoblins flying through the air. Christ coming into a spiritualistic seance to dance. I have seen that pretense in this country. It is not in that way that these manifestations of God come. To Vivekananda, Jesus was not a wonder worker, but a bearer of the same universal truth he drew from the Vedas that humans find divine presence only by looking within, not by seeking miracles without. To my surprise, most surveys of world religions seem to agree with Vivekananda. How else to explain the fact that of the dozen or so on my shelf, hardly any even contain the word miracle in the index? Modern scholars seem embarrassed by the very belief that animates over half of the world's population. That rather rough estimate is determined uh, early on in the book. And a couple of my friends have said, that seems a little low. Because if there is anything that marks the contemporary resurgence of interest in religion across the globe, by the way, one of the greatest surprises to the post-Enlightenment mind was that religion didn't go away uh, near the end of the 20th century, but actually became stronger and in more traditional forms, including the belief in miracles. And as I point out in the book, not just belief in healings or even levitation or translocation, but also miracles of political change. For if God can somehow heal my severed optic nerve and I see again, perhaps also he determines the effect of the election that turns out the rascals currently oppressing me. There is nothing innocent about miracle stories. Perhaps even in this audience, the question arises, how could anyone in their right mind in the 21st century believe in the possibility of miracles? Must one not be mad, gullible, or fraudulent to endorse stories of miracles? That has been the view of many since the publication of a brief essay on miracles appended to David Hume's inquiry concerning human understanding. Hume's, Hume's essay has been so influential that I devote a section to it, but I will subject you only to a paragraph. Hume defined a miracle in the way that is fairly now uh, common parlance. A miracle is a transgression of a law of nature by a particular volition of the deity or by the interposition of some invisible agent. Now, the background for Hume's understanding of miracles 
is the central premise of 18th century science inherited from Isaac Newton, that the world is composed of physical objects and forces that operate according to exceptionalist laws, either imposed on matter by a divine creator or inherent within matter itself. Hume did not assume this premise was true a priori, because then miracles would be impossible by definition, since a violation of an exceptionalist law constitutes a logical contradiction. But he did consider a miracle to be a disruption or subversion of the customary order of things that would require extraordinary testimony to establish as a fact. He used language of transgression closely related to violation or forcible and lawful assault on the integrity of another. I think it not an overstatement to say that for Hume, a miracle is an act of violence committed by God against the body of the world, the rape of Dame Nature by her capricious maker. In his definition of miracle, Hume registered a sense of outrage that a willful deity by a particular volition could subvert the system of nature which Hume and his colleagues had just secured within their intellectual grasp. After all, if God could transgress the boundary between heaven and earth and interfere with the rationality of natural order, then where would science and philosophy be? What would become of their joint enterprise to master the secrets of physical forces and human actions? By calling a miracle a transgression, Hume was saying, in effect, that God has no lawful right to act in the world. The world belonged to human understanding. In any event that defied that understanding was a trespass onto a forbidden region. As God once expelled humans from paradise, so Hume exiled God from the world. God can transcend, pass beyond, but God cannot trespass, cross over. By means of his deceptively simple definition, Hume put those who accepted miracles in the position of advocating transgressive acts on the part of God. That is, after Hume, to defend the occurrence of miracles, one had to defend the violation of nature, the significance of irrationality, and the value of disruption. Then as now, believers in miracles were cast at best as gullible, at worst as fanatical or deceptive. Now, Hume was wise enough to realize that on empirical grounds, it is impossible to demonstrate that miracles cannot occur. Why not? Well, because the investigation of regularities and probabilities in the operation of natural forces is always retrospective. Science is always telling us what has already happened. That is its great explanatory power. By meticulous attention to data, scientific hypotheses construct very reliable models of future events. They tell us what will most likely occur. But they cannot, by their very nature, tell us what must happen or even what may happen. As in religion, so in science, prophecy is tricky, especially about the future. Hume was wise enough to see the philosophical limits of his empiricism, and so he rested his case against miracles 
in his estimate of the utter unreliability of religious witnesses. Now, whether he is right that no one in the entire history of human reflection has ever accurately and honestly reported a miraculous event seems to me questionable. Fortunately, however, I did not set myself the task of testing the credibility of every witness to a miracle, but remained content to investigate how those who do believe in miracles interpret them. Take, for example, this wonder-filled healing story from Hindu tradition, in which a physical restoration is taken as a sign of spiritual liberation. I should warn you, this is probably R-rated. Krishna is on his way to a wrestling match when he encounters a hunchback woman named Travakra, meaning crooked in three places, who prepared ointments for his evil uncle. Smitten by the handsome features of Krishna, she smeared consecrated oil on him. And in response to this spontaneous gesture of devotion, which, of course, was also a courageous act of defiance of the king and an impulsive act of infatuation, Krishna decided to make the beautiful hunchback straight of form, thus showing what can result from seeing him. He stepped his foot on hers and, placing two fingers under her chin, pulled her body upright. The text tells us, Travakra instantly became a most beautiful young woman with large hips and breasts and with her limbs straight and uniform. She was so strongly attracted to Krishna that she begged him to satisfy her desire for him. He promised to return after the wrestling match, and when he did, she was waiting eagerly. Travakra embraced her lover with her two arms and eased the pain of desire in her burning breasts, as well as the pain in her chest and eyes, by smelling the lotus feet of the eternal, the embodiment of bliss, placed himself between her breasts, and she gave up the intense yearning she had suffered for so long. Now, the narrator of this steamy passage, my colleague Tracy Coleman tells me this is mild compared to others in the literature, notes that the woman was granted exclusive intimacy with Krishna even though she had merely performed a token act of piety. The narrator relates the rest of the story that Krishna satisfied her desire by staying with her for several days. Let's get rid of Hume. But he adds the moral tagline, one who chooses sensual objects after having worshipped Krishna is misguided. This is because the nature of sensual objects is illusory. Now, this caution is entirely understandable in light of ascetic restrictions in Hindu devotional practice, but it also reminds us that the story of this healing and the passion it aroused was not meant to be taken literally. The meaning of Krishna's realigning the woman's body by miraculous traction lies in its awakening her desire for Krishna. For the narrator, the true healing, because it is of lasting value, is Travakra's deliverance from sensual desire altogether. The text informs us that in giving herself utterly to Krishna in self-forgetfulness, she emptied herself of any further yearning. 
By allowing her passion to burst into full flame, she found that it burned every other object of desire except Krishna himself. Now, the power of sacred narrative to draw readers into its representation of divine acts defines scripture in most traditions. In retelling stories about redemptive acts of gods, the original power is made present again to restore what has gone awry in human life. So every reader suffering with debilitating handicaps can find solace in the story of Travakra, in whom Krishna takes delight, reforming her body, ravishing her senses, and finally liberating her mind. To enter into that narrative is to realize the illusion of physical form and the lasting reality of union with Krishna. Within that narrative, all bodies are entrancing to the Lord, and every reader can imagine exciting his passion and being embraced by his loving arms. The meaning of this powerful healing story is that anyone can experience the ecstasy of this woman in devotion to Krishna. The stilling of her spiritual anguish was in effect more real than her physical healing because her ecstasy lasted longer than her ability to walk. For the contemporary reader, the meaning is clear. Whether one's body remains unmoving in a wheelchair or not, it is possible to unite with Krishna in spiritual healing that is eternal consciousness made present. That insight is what makes these stories a source of spiritual liberation for those who read and learn them. And only relatively wooden-headed philosophers like Hume insist upon taking them literally. What I did not ask in this study is why do people believe in miracles? Because we cannot always know why people believe anything they believe. What we can know is what people say they think a miracle story means to them, a meaning that varies from tradition to tradition and over time within traditions themselves. I would like to briefly present to you three stories from the book, which are stories of levitation. I've added one since this slide was made. <laughs> In the mode of description, our examples seem identical. Bodies suspended in defiance of gravity. The three are this. In the presence of challengers, Buddha rises into the air in a body of flame. Jesus walks on the waves of a stormy lake and stills the water by a command. Muhammad is transported on a winged beast from Mecca to Jerusalem and there ascends into the highest heaven. The question, of course, is that these traditions offer divergent explanations for what appear to be similar events. For Christians and Muslims, miracles are acts of God, signifying divine intention, and investing the miracles worker with divine authority. While for Buddhists, they are demonstrations of fully realized mind, signifying the self-transcendence and the mastery of ascetic discipline. Can the term miracle properly apply to both these domains of meaning as a basis for comparing them? That requires that we know something about miracle. How interesting. 
This is like the Cheshire Cat. It slowly appears. I must have hit a wrong control at some time or other. Well, we'll see if the rest of this slide eventually materializes. The word miracle is Middle English, enters our vocabulary from the Latin miraculum or object of wonder. From this etymology, we note that in ordinary usage, the word miracle denotes an act or event, but it emerged from a matrix of meaning that connotes a response to particular acts or events, that is, a sense of wonder. Thus, what we use as if it were a verbal sign pointing to an objective state of affairs points instead reflexively to our own subjective impressions. But what is the impression of wonder? It is an odd word. The word wonder is a variation on the Old English noun wonder, based on the verb wondrian and related to Dutch wonder and German wunder. <laughs> Isn't that helpful? Beyond that, the trail grows cold we are informed the word is of unknown ultimate origin. Perhaps it is appropriate that a term indicating amazement at what defies understanding should itself be occluded, but no words are more in need of demystification than those that refer to mystery. In the New Testament, the miraculous acts of Jesus are described as powers, wonders, and signs, a description that combines the elements in my view of miracle as an event of transcendent power that arouses wonder and carries religious significance. A miracle is an occasion for understanding something about oneself as subject capable of wonder and something about the world, an object with unexpected possibilities. Richard Davis points out that beneath the cluster of meanings associated with miracle in Western languages, there lies a root term from the classic language of India, a term which means to smile, that is to be surprised, to wonder. The fundamental character of miracles as invoking wonder leads Davis to infer that they are social acts. Miracles require an audience, a community of witnesses who respond to the event with appropriate reactions. Miracles also presume a set of socially shared expectations concerning what ought to happen so that we can identify what doesn't often happen. Thus, miracles require a company of responders who share a common understanding of their world. This understanding of wonder uh, is close to what Rene Descartes characterized as a sudden surprise of the soul. What, I, what interests me about Descartes' uh, discussion of wonder is that he calls it a primitive passion prior to any moral inflection. Just to say the first response to a miracle is a response of sheer stupefying effect. Without knowing whether it's good or bad, whether it's going to benefit me or not benefit me, it is simply something that strikes one with wonder, like an unexpected blow. 
This point is of considerable importance to me in thinking about miraculous events, since I do not think that all miraculous events are necessarily beneficial. Uh, there are miraculous events that are predicted to come, acts of judgment, acts of worldwide cataclysm, uh, divinely uh, or in other ways affected, that do not bring benefit. And so uh, it is also true that in the Indian and Asian views of things, the response does not necessarily uh, correspond to a moral valuation. Wonder is a response to the object as an anomaly in the world of the subject, a break in the normal way of things. And there is great resistance to accepting wonder. In the Indian context, wondrous events are understood as manifestations of another world in this one. There are many worlds in operation at the same time, and in the traditions of India, traffic between worlds was relatively common. Now, many scholars regard the cosmology of multiple worlds as a point of contrast between Asian and Western believers in miracles. But I would say that no matter one's cultural location, a believer in miracle has to be committed to at least two worlds, the one of ordinary experience called nature or maya or samsara, and the one of supernatural power that impinges upon ordinary order. Miracles occur when there is traffic between worlds. Let's turn to our examples. First, the Buddha. In one account of Buddha's levitation, the miracle occurred on his return to his homeland to share his teaching with his father, the king, and the elders of his clan. But they denounced him for abandoning his royal duties to become a wandering mendicant and demanded that he give up philosophical madness. He countered by condemning them for their ignorance. <laughs> Not a promising start to a debate. And so the elders turned to leave when, in a final effort to win them over, Buddha performed the miracle of the pears, which is described this way. He ascended into the air while flames of fire issued upward from his body and torrents of water poured down. Then the flames went downward while the water went up toward the sky. Next, fire came from the right side of his body and water from the left. Then the fire and water changed sides. After 22 variations of pairs had been exhibited, he came down from the sky and told the people the story of his existence which preceded his birth. The king and all the nobles realized they beheld not just a man, nor a mere god, or God's messenger, but a Buddha supreme. Now, in this story, Buddha demonstrates that he has maintained the highest level of integrated consciousness. Some would say that he now occupies a level of understanding in which his own body has become the creative matrix of a new physical order, a matrix not subject to laws of any kind, as laws of physics do not hold in whatever state of affairs obtained before the Big Bang. In this state of undifferentiated consciousness, Buddha knows the matrix of reality as a unified whole, and he is not constrained by its later divisions and laws of operation. Thus, he is able to transform the conditions of the world by his thought. Now, I want to, I'm going to have to condense the rest of this. You have been wonderfully patient uh, thus far, so let me 
uh, wrap this up here. I want to compare that telling of this story with a later telling of the very same story, the miracle of the pears, in a different context in which Buddha uses the miracle to, uh, to defeat opponents who have challenged him to perform a miracle. And on the appointed day, Buddha arose into the air. Before them, fire and water issued from his body, and his challengers were forced to accept his superior power and insight. Now, in this version, Buddha's triumph is over rival teachers rather than persuasion of his own clan members. This aspect of the story is celebrated in a Tibetan ritual which represents the marvel of the pears as an appropriate symbol for the overcoming of evil forces and of Buddhism's past victory over the Tibetan indigenous religion. The story takes on political significance as it is retold today in a Tibet threatened with cultural extinction. I have a similar analysis of Jesus walking on the water, which is a kind of post-colonial reading that suggests Jesus crossing the water, casting out the demon legion, sending the demons in pigs into the sea is all a coded representation of Christ as the new Caesar who crosses the sea, defeats the legions, and sends them into the sea. Most of Mark's readers would have been delighted to consider the possibility of those Roman legions being suffocated in the waters of the Mediterranean as Pharaoh's army was drowned in the Red Sea. As I said, miracle stories are not innocent. Finally, the interweaving of spiritual meaning and political authority is also evident in the third example, the night journey of Muhammad. This uh, may be a story with which you are somewhat familiar in which Muhammad is taken in one night on a winged beast from Mecca to Jerusalem, whereupon he ascends into heaven and reaches the throne of God. Now, for most Muslims, the story about Muhammad's night journey and his ascent into heaven is a story about Muhammad's authority to determine the practice of the Muslim community and to proclaim the divine will for the present age. For Sufis, however, this is a story about the ascent of the soul through meditative practices. We might say to that place which is beyond, beyond understanding. Muhammad makes his way up through seven heavens. At each heaven, he meets a different prophet until finally he comes before the throne of Allah, at which point Gabriel must withdraw lest his wings be singed. To reach the divine throne, Muhammad stepped off the top rung of the ladder, so to speak, leaving behind linear progression and knowledge accumulated by retracing prophetic history. At that point, Muhammad was miraculously removed from history and drawn into the timeless moment of divine reality. This is a an event which takes on different meaning in different branches of Islam, Sunni and Shia and Sufi. But there is one person who comments on it that perhaps has the last, uh, the last word 
and that is Muhammad's wife, Aisha, who testified, the apostle's body remained where it was, but God removed his spirit by night. Aisha's pragmatic test of whether the miracle really happened does not, of course, limit its power to signify the authority and wisdom of the prophet. Given the power of his religious vision to transform Arab culture at the time and now to have extended his message to over a billion people, Muhammad soared far beyond his bed and his grave. Perhaps at the most basic level, Belief in miracles is the expression of our refusal to accept existence in a closed system of material forces and political powers. Belief in miracles signals our hope that the future may be radically different from the past. And is that not, after all, a great part of what it means to be human? Thank you.